I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be taking a break from our time in Exodus, at least for the next uh, few weeks. This morning, reading from John chapter 12. And the Apostle John is writing this Gospel so that whoever reads these words might believe uh, that Jesus is uh, the Christ, and by believing, have life in His name. We know that from later in John chapter 20, that this is John's heart uh, for those who would read these words, whether they're Jew or Gentile, uh, for anyone. And John's approach is a little different than the other gospel writers, those three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have similar content uh, on the life and ministry of Jesus. But John, on the other hand, weaves in some more interpretation and commentary on the life and ministry of Jesus. So if Jesus heals a man or He, he raises one from the dead, uh, what does that mean? Um, what does that tell us about Jesus? And so John uses these signs and wonders to um, direct and point us to the glory of Christ. And admittedly, some of these signs are a little challenging for us as they were for the original audience. But Jesus is a door. Jesus is the vine. Jesus is bread. Well, what does that mean? Um, But it's not until that great and final sign of Christ's resurrection um, that all of these other signs come into focus. Not until we see the glory of the cross and the glory of the empty tomb uh, do we begin to understand the significance of these signs. So as we read in uh, John 12 this morning, we're moving from this collection of signs into the glorification of Jesus. Um, So John 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look how the world has gone after him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for this, your word. Teaches us, encourages us, admonishes us. For the sake of righteousness, that we might grow in grace. We might grow in our understanding of who you are, Lord Jesus, as our King. Now we ask, O Spirit of Christ, that you would work your word into our hearts, enlarge our hearts for our Savior, for our King, that you may be glorified in our midst in this place and as we go from this place. Lord, we need your help now, even as we read, to understand and apply your word. I'll be glorified in its preaching in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there are probably still some stations where you can uh, catch an episode of the family feud. Do you remember this game? We have one family on, on one side and another on the other side, that notorious red button in the middle. 
And two players come and the, the, the fastest you know, one to, to hit the, the red button then allows the, the family the opportunity to uh, answer these uh, questions. Questions that have come, usually one or two word answers from a survey of 100 people. And so the family scores, depending on how many answers they give that, uh, that those surveyed actually gave. You remember Steve Harvey would turn around and uh, if they guessed right, then survey says, ding, 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 ding. Or survey says, eh, if nobody uh, surveyed answered in that way. Well, an episode uh, of Family Feud, not too long ago, um, they asked this question in that one-minute race against the buzzer, when someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? And uh, so the goal of the game would be to give the answer that as many or most of those 100 people surveyed uh, would give. It turns out that 81 out of 100 people, so 8 out of 10, gave the same answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right? There's the king. Okay, I'll work on it, but... Um, uh, there's Elvis. Elvis is the king, right? Eight out of ten people. That was the first thing that, that they thought. Three people said Martin Luther King Jr. Two people out of 100 said Burger King, obviously. Uh, but seven out of 100 said God or Jesus. So not quite one in ten uh, gave that answer. But on this, this Sunday morning in Jerusalem, uh, that was the only answer or at least the only answer that could be heard from the crowd of people in Jerusalem. It wasn't Elvis, it wasn't Burger King, it was the King of Israel. Jesus had been staying in Bethany, just a couple of miles outside Jerusalem. And we know from earlier in the chapter that many people had gone to Bethany because they heard about Lazarus. They heard what Jesus had done there. So it's likely this crowd is coming with him now from Bethany on this morning into Jerusalem. And as he gets closer to the city, more and more people are joining in. And we don't have definite records of the time, but during this time of celebration, it could have been several million people converging in the city uh, around this time for the Passover. So this, this little parade isn't little for very long. Uh, it grows, it grows. And for Jesus, this is the home stretch of his mission. God's word is fulfilled as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The people hail him as the king that he is, but the king that they do not yet know. He will save, but not in the way that they expect. His kingdom includes this world, but is not of this world. And so I want us to look at the responses to Jesus as he rides into the city based on what we discover, to think about our own response to this humble king riding into Jerusalem. So we'll look briefly at the cry of the crowds, the fear of the Pharisees, and our own testimony of the truth. The cry of the crowds, fear of the Pharisees, and testimony of the truth. Uh, these last few years, we've seen how racism in this land and a, a really a fear of those who are different than, than we are, how that lies just below the surface. Uh, it doesn't take much uh, for that to, to bubble out. You may remember a few years ago, a young uh, African-American man from a predominantly African-American uh, community in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, was killed 
by a police officer who happened to be a white police officer. So there's uprising, protests uh, in the community, uh, in Ferguson, and, uh, and especially after this officer was acquitted of the charges against him, then there was further outcry uh, to this perceived uh, injustice. But it didn't stop with St. Louis. In a short amount of time, there were people coming from all over the country to that part of the country, to Ferguson, uh, all joining in the streets, holding their signs in protest. For a worthy cause, perhaps, in many ways, perhaps not, in other ways. But what I found so interesting about this was the number of people who didn't live in Ferguson or St. Louis, um, who didn't know this family that had been affected or really have any connection with the community, here they are, uh, gathering in the streets, eager to jump in and support this uprising that they may not really have understood. So we see the people around Jerusalem, they're jumping in, they're not waving signs in protest, but they're waving branches in praise. The king is here, finally! As they wave their, their palm branches, the date palm was a very uh, well-known Jewish symbol in that time, a symbol of victory and of, of celebration. So the people are waving their palms and, and hoping for this this liberator who would bring victory, a Messiah who would challenge even Roman oppression, the hand of Rome upon them. So they're excited. This is what they've been waiting for. But Jesus doesn't come in riding on a war horse. Can you, can you imagine if he would have done that? How the crowds would have responded? They would, they would have taken their swords right then and there. It would have been a slaughter. Um, you know, he's not, Jesus is not robed in, in purple with his his sword by his side. I mean, we know our nature, right? We know the crowds, how it can get out of hand. I mean, Ferguson's a great example of this, or Charleston, like we we saw in this last year. It doesn't take long in the mix of emotion, whether it's excitement or anger, to go from a quiet protest to violence and vandalism very quickly. We get worked up in a crowd, finding boldness that we wouldn't otherwise have. But Jesus doesn't come into Jerusalem to work them up or to create an uprising. He comes humbly and in peace. The prophet Zechariah, John read just a minute ago, said he'd be gentle riding on a donkey, not arrogant and boastful on a stallion. And Jesus doesn't stop the crowds. He says that the very rocks will cry out if they stop crying out. But his kingdom has nothing to do with the power and the splendor and the wealth of this world. But God is fulfilling his word. But it's not going to take long for the people waving palm branches uh, to wave their fists in anger, turning on Jesus. Um, he doesn't help them in the way that they're expecting, hoping for. Later in chapter 12, John says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the crowds may have shown a positive response to Jesus on this Palm Sunday, but the Apostle John doesn't give them a whole lot of credit. Their reaction, though it's fit for a king, is based on an unbelief. They're joining in excitement. They're, they're familiar with this Jewish symbol, very familiar Jewish expression, Hosanna! But they don't understand 
this humble king or the, the kingdom that he brings in with him. So let me ask you that question. Do we understand who this king is? We know the power of the crowd. We know how easy it is to, to stand in, in the midst of the fray with our palms in the air. We can exalt Jesus and, and shout for Him to save us without any real understanding of who He is or any real desire to submit our lives to His rule. This is the cry of the crowd as we watch them. But, but what happens when we watch ourselves? Is it an act? Are we just going through emotions? Just right with the crowd, just doing what we're supposed to be doing? Or does our praise really come from the heart, from sincerity? Um, that's the praise He desires, praise that He requires of those who believe in Him. We see how patient and um, gracious our God is in this. Um, Jesus rides into the city knowing that those who are crying out don't really know who He is or why He has really come. He knows that so many will change their tune and cry out against Him under pressure in just a few days. He knows how, how fickle and persuaded the mob can be. And yet He receives their praise. He allows them to participate in this mission. He receives our praise. He allows us to participate when our, our faith is only maturing. Our faith may not be that strong. Maybe when our faith is hanging on by the fingernails. Okay. Even when we don't understand, God is at work, fulfilling His Word. This is something we really must believe as, as we live the Gospel, share the Gospel in word and deed, that the vast majority of the people we know, um, let's, let's take a good look here first, looking at ourselves. When they hear about Jesus, or they come in contact with some truth of the gospel, they, they will freely admit, oh, well, sure. Sure, I, I go to, to church, or I used to go to church, but, and then fill in the blank. Or, yeah, I, I was baptized, I was confirmed at this place at this time. Here's my palm branch, Hosanna. But the heart is far from him, if, if it ever has changed at all. Does the Lord desire our praise? Yes, we've been made for this. And he will be praised through the, the glory of the righteous in him. And he will be praised through the punishment of the wicked without him. But let's examine ourselves closely this morning. We can wave palm branches all day long and miss it. We can miss Him in the midst of the crowd. So we hear the cry of the crowds, uh, but there are some in this crowd that aren't making all that much noise. These are the guys who have been suspicious of Jesus from the very beginning, uh, made a, just about every attempt they could to silence Him. Um, and this won't stop for the next few days. Um, why is this? Um, really, when it gets down to it, it's because they are afraid. If Jesus is getting this much attention, then they're not getting this attention. Um, their, their, their power, the prestige, control that they enjoy as uh, the religious leaders, gurus in town, is not helped by Jesus. Um, 
He's, he's the very threat to their moral system, a threat to their true God and King. Okay, they know they're not profiting from this parade at all, so it scares them. And what do we do when we're scared? Typically, we either run away or we dig our heels in. We fight. That's what we see them doing here. The whole, the whole world has gone after him. They refuse. They would continue to fight the unfolding reality of God's love. Fight the rightful reign of King Jesus. Here's where I wonder if the Pharisees and the crowds are really all that different. The crowd doesn't necessarily praise out of faith in who Jesus is, and the Pharisees just show a more overt unbelief. The Pharisees are their own king. The crowds are looking for an external political peace for themselves. But their response still puts themselves as, as first, on top of, of that order of importance. So both the Pharisees and the people fail to acknowledge that the reign of Jesus is so much bigger than themselves. They fail to see his rightful rule over their hearts and over their lives. Jesus is king. He has come to, to save the whole world. And that's a marvelous irony in this language that we see here. Verse 19, when the Pharisees say that the whole world has gone after him. They're, I mean, they're referring to all the people in Jerusalem. But what they don't fathom is that Jesus has indeed come for the whole world without distinction. Not just for the crowd waving palm branches. He's come for the true Israel of God, the world over. Jew and Gentile are going to proclaim Him as King. This is why John can say with such confidence back in chapter 3, For God so loved the world, He sent His Son in order that the world might be saved through Him. So all people without distinction who are lost in rebellion against God can enjoy the saving reign of King Jesus. Church, that includes you. That includes me. Let's not miss that or fail to praise the King for the extent of His grace. A grace that is to the world over. That anyone from anywhere can come in repentance and faith. Jesus has come for all those whom the Father has given Him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. The Pharisees feared for themselves, for their own prestige and control. Yet we see the very fulfillment of God's word through the prophets uh, claims just the opposite. Uh, John's quotation in verse 15 is, is taken from Zechariah 9, which you've heard already this morning. I think there's a little, little of Isaiah 40 uh, mixed in there. Isaiah 40 verse 9 says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So the humble King Jesus has come to drive out fear. Not just that external political fears, like the oppression of, of the Roman rule. He's come to drive out fear of punishment at the hand of a holy God. To drive out the fear of pain, the fear of, of loss, 
and death. The heart that praises King Jesus in faith, it need not fear. It doesn't need to fear anything. We can enjoy a peace in all circumstances because the love of Jesus drives out fear among us. I think some of the most bone-chilling and yet comforting words of Jesus, it comes to His disciples in Luke chapter 12, with people all over the place, He turns to His disciples and He says to them, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who, after He has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. That doesn't make your hair stand on end. Check your pulse. The verses immediately following, he says, fear not. You're not forgotten. God hasn't forgotten the sparrow. He's not going to forget you. In Jesus, the fear of eternal punishment is transformed into this, this holy reverence and awe of the majesty of God and awe of His mercy. He shows to sinners just like me, just like you. Do not fear for yourselves, says the unbelieving Pharisee. Fear God and worship and praise. Because you've been free to make much of Him, not of yourselves. It really moves us into this last point, the testimony of truth. I was trying to think of an example in life where I've looked back at an event and concluded that, well, sure, it just had to happen that way. Uh, didn't make sense at the time. I didn't understand it, but not until later could I look back and, and see uh, the Lord's uh, work and how He orchestrated those things. And well, one thing I could would think of was pretty easy when I was at the academy and broke, um, broke my ankle, left basic training, went back home, came back the following year, started over. Well, had, that, had I broke my ankle two days later, I would have stayed in with that class, seemingly, and wouldn't have been there when my future wife came back to Colorado and all these events just begin to unfold. And you look back and you go, oh yeah, now I get it. I see what God was doing. And not now that we're going to understand every event or affliction in that way. We don't have the mind of God, but every now and then He gives us those clear, oh yeah, now I get it moments. This is what he did for the disciples. Not until after Jesus came out of the tomb and ascended in glory to the Father's side do they get why this played out in the way that it did. God's Word through the prophets has just opened up to them. They begin to understand now in a whole new dimension what was unfolding during this week in Jerusalem. Disciples couldn't do this on their own. God has to show them this. He has to give them this understanding into His Word. And He has to do this for us. If we're going to understand anything about Christ and His kingdom, God must show us. He must illumine His Word so that we can say, oh, now I get it. I see why this happened in the great story. Now that Jesus has been glorified and we live here now in 2018, you know, we, we, we can understand this ride into Jerusalem with much more clarity. And that's John's desires for his readers, to, to look back. Go, yes, I see now what God was doing through His Son. Why He had to enter Jerusalem 
in this way. It encourages in us a deeper faith, a deeper praise to the Lord. He's come in victory to free us from our sins. And He's coming again. We can celebrate this. If anyone could ever shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it is the believer who cries out with a heart of faith, a heart of love for Jesus. One who has no fear of this world, but longs for that, that restoration of all things. Okay, we can understand this now and testify to the truth. To the crowd, even with their lack of understanding and faith, they testify to what Jesus had done. Verse 17 tells us that. They thought if Jesus could raise people from the dead like He did for Lazarus, then He just might be the one. But we're in a different place in this story, so we don't, we don't hope that Jesus is the one. We know that He is. It's His Spirit that shows us the signs of His glory. And if our lives have been changed by the power of of God's love. We can do no less than what we see the crowds doing here in praise and honor, uh, spreading the word, bearing witness to the truth of this victory that we have in King Jesus. So we need to remember that Jesus came into the city. He came of His own accord. Um, he did this voluntarily as part of His mission. He wasn't compelled by the crowds. He was compelled by a love for His Father, compelled by a love for those He came to save. So while the crowd is shouting, save us, please, Jesus is, is inwardly praying, pleading with the Father, save them, that they do not fully understand who I am. They do not believe now. So will you raise your palm in praise this morning? Um, will you follow Him in faith this week as, as He moves towards the cross? Oh, may we weep. May we weep and grieve over our sin, but no sooner rejoice over that empty tomb and the riches of God's grace. So behold, don't miss this. Don't miss Him in the crowd. Your King has come. He's coming again. Let's pray together. O oh, King Jesus, we praise You on this day. Lord, may we praise You with hearts that, that know and believe this truth, that are moved with, with love and sincerity to worship You. Lord, we don't want to just go through the motions. We don't want to just grab the palm branch because it's sitting there and everyone else is doing it. Work in our hearts. Bind us together in love and unity. Oh, come quickly, King Jesus, again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.